one soul ring. Got it. Yay. Got it. Did you like all the uh, photos and stuff? It's a fancy document. Yeah, it's uh, and it's you know it's a little less boring that way. And uh, remember those novels that you could get where in the middle it was a bunch of like photo paper pictures. Oh yeah, totally. Scholastic book fairs. I, I would always get those. <laughs> I would always get those out of the library and not read the book and just look at the pictures. Sure. Yeah, I had. I uh, I was a big fan of Hanson back in the day. Woo. Uh, and they had a novel like that. It was like a autobiography thing. Um, Spice Girls had one too. Yeah. I looked at that a lot. There you go. And in the middle of the Hanson book, there was pictures. I don't think I ever actually read the book. I just liked the pictures in the middle. Yeah. Anyways, we're going to get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our lore series. I'm Kevin. Hey, I'm Eric. And uh, today we have our, uh, we have guest host and our editor, Ainsley, joining us. Hi, I'm Ainsley. There you go. Yeah. Uh, so we are continuing with Urza's story and his personal war against Phyrexia. We're taking the majority of the information that we'll be covering in this series from the novel Time Streams. It is the third novel in the Artifact Cycle, and it was written by J. Robert King and was originally published in 1999. Uh, the paperback is extremely expensive, so if you want to read it, I would advise you to find a PDF of the novel to download and read. Uh, and that's that's what I did. If you go on Amazon and, and look at these books, they are very expensive. And they were also reprinted in a, because uh, there's four books in the series, they're also reprinted into a two-book uh, volume. And those are also very expensive. So save your money and just go and get a PDF if you want to read these. Although if you do get just the PDF, you might miss out on the sweet cover art. Yeah, that's uh, that's Karn. Is that Karn? And, uh, that, that's a huge spoiler, by the way. I'm kidding. No, it's also like a, a weather light looking boat thing. Sort it of. does. It looks. Yeah, and I think you see. You can see some uh, parapets of pr- probably what is the Tolarian Academy. I think so. Yeah. I think behind that, uh, like we mentioned near the end of our Planeswalker series, Urza had already had plans for the Tolarian Academy when he was living in a cabin with Zantra. Remember when he and was rat. living in that cabin? <laughs> and Rat. Yeah. Yeah. Rat was there too. That's they were like he... the odd triple pod. Yeah, God pod. that sounds like a good sitcom. <laughs> so in Time Streams, uh, Urza's plans for the academy populated with like-minded wizards and artificers came together to prepare for the inevitable Phyrexian invasion of Dominaria. Dun, dun, dun. Well, there is a set called Invasion, so. Yeah. It, it, is, it is inevitable. I see what they did there. Yeah. This story begins about <laughs> 40 years after the events of Planeswalker. Uh, by that time, Urza and the wizard Baron had already founded the Academy and began training young mages and artificers. They had also just completed the sentient artifact creature that they would eventually come to call Karn. But for the, uh, we're just going to start calling him Karn now. But, but we'll get to the part in the story where he actually gets the name. So right now he is the sentient f- I, to well, be known as Karn. Yeah. But I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say that. But they just kind of like offset. There's no like they introduce him as like, hey, you know, this robot's a thing too. They actually refer to him as the probe. <laughs> but, uh, before we get to explaining the uh, new characters in the story, we're gonna explain a bit about the island of Talaria and the academy that Urza and Baron built there. Talaria was a legendary island on Dominaria. It was, of course, well known for being the site of the original Talarian Academy. Most people thought of Teleria as a myth, a land of great wealth that was lost to an unknown curse that covered the island in a terrible, devouring, uh, terrible, devouring mists. 
sort of sounds like Argoth from the Brothers War. Mm-hmm. For centuries, sailors told tales of the island of people who entered the isle's interior only to return weeks later without any knowledge of the time that had passed, or worse still, of people gone for hours but aged years. Ooh, it's like that Crazy. movie with Matthew McConaughey where he goes to space. Interstellar. That one. Yeah, yeah. Great movie. It's very good. Anyways, the geography of Talaria was that of a large tropical island. I'm sure you've all seen those before. It was lightly forested with palm trees on the shore and hardwood trees on the interior. It was part of a chain of islands that were uninhabited during the time that Urza and his school existed, and it's unknown if the islands near Talaria were ever inhabited. But before the founding of the academy, Talaria was home to many shapeshifters, as well as other Ah. creatures native to the island were fairies, drakes, and sentient illusions, so probably ghosts. That's what that sounds like. In addition, uh, merfolk and sea serpents inhabited the surrounding waters. And after the founding of the Academy, the island was, of course, home to many humans as well. All right. Also, I guess with the sentient illusions, like we have like, you know, phantasmal dragon and the bear and stuff like that. So I'm wondering if there's, you know, like depictions of other animals as illusions as well. Maybe. I don't know. I guess they'd have to be. I don't. I don't think the bear and the uh, the serpent are sentient, though. They might be. I don't know. I mean, it's magic, so really anything could happen. Mm-hmm. We we could even get it's like magic. Walking Dead characters in here. Who knows? <laughs> oh boy. You know what? You know what we should do is call up Weird Al. Tell him that he needs to make a song called "Sentient Illusions" to Lady Gaga's "Perfect Illusion," and. Uh, <laughs> You know, we're going to make tons of money. That would sell. Yeah. That would sell. (laughs) Anyway, Urza chose the island as a location for his school and research laboratories because of the vast distance that it was from any other landmass in Dominaria. He wanted to keep its existence a mystery. So, of course, an island of mystery was the perfect spot. (laughs) One last interesting detail about the academy was that Urza only allowed children to attend. This was because he knew that Phyrexian sleeper agents never appeared as children and thus could not infiltrate his school. So it was sort of like, um, you know, it started off with Urza and Baron and a bunch of kids. And then as those kids grew into adults, those former students would become the teachers of the academy. And that's sort of how Urza avoided Phyrexian sleepers infiltrating his school. Moles. Exactly. Mole, mole, mole. That's good. It's never, it's never too, it's never too late for a, a Mike Myers reference. Oh man, I love Austin Powers. <laughs> so stuff. we're gonna we're, we're gonna move on to the uh, new characters. In addition to Karn and Baron making their first appearances, a couple of other well-known characters from uh, Magic were students at the Academy. Those characters are Joyra and Teferi. And we're going to cover a bit about these characters and their lives before they arrived on Teleria. And we'll start with Baron. Uh, we talked a bit about Baron's backstory several weeks ago. It's probably a couple months ago now um, when we did that. Uh, th- we deck tech Riley's Baron Tolarian Archmage deck. So go back and check out that episode. It's very, very fun deck if you like very to be fun. disliked by your opponents. Is that the one you guys <laughs> kept saying was jank? Mm, it's hard to say because it was a Riley deck tech. So most of them are jank. Yeah, yeah, he likes jank. They're good. Like they're good though. He wins a lot. We love you, Riley. <laughs> Baron was born on the in the Teresian kingdom of Keldor during the Ice Age, the same Ice Age that Urza caused. Originally named Baronalo, he was prophesied to become the most powerful wizard in all of Dominaria. 
Before he would make that prophecy a reality, he was a mid-level bureaucrat in the Keldoran political system. He eventually adopted the name Baron after running out of ink, signing his name uh, one time. That's silly. It is. Huh, but he just, he just went with it. Can you imagine? No, just give yourself a nickname. Yeah, absolutely. Just everybody that's listening, just run out of ink. He's more like, my often. ink pod yeah. is barren. <laughs> oh, oh, it's boy. funny you said it because it kept uh, this this uh, document kept autocorrecting to like barren, like the the leader, uh, or barren, like you know the soil. Uh, it can't grow anything oh, in the soil. Right. It is barren. Yeah. It, it is barren, barren wastes. Exactly. Yeah. And once uh, Baron was more experienced in uh, wizardry. Urza contacted him and shared his plan for defending Dominaria. Then they became best friends and got to work. BFFs. Um, are, He's are like, are we best friends now? And Urza was like, yep. Are you guys thinking what I'm thinking? Like, Urza shows up and he's like, you're a wizard, Harry. Oh, yeah, that's better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, my name's not Harry. No, this is rife with potential Harry Potter references. Well, J.K. Rowling probably stole this. Well, she stole from... the J from his author name. That's for sure. That's right. Yeah, J. Robert King. Get the, get that money. I bet yeah. he's not transphobic. Anyways. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to Karn, he was created and built by Urza and Baron so that they could experiment with time travel, which is a big part of the first part of this story. Karn was a hulking silver golem. He was silver because Urza and Baron discovered that silver was exceptionally more resistant to the stresses of time travel than other materials. Karn was also the first sentient artifact creature Urza had ever built. Urza achieved his, this sentience by using his former companion's Zancha Hearthstone as part of the construction of his uh, of Karn's perspective cortex or his brain. Hmm. The addition of Zancha's Hearthstone allowed Karn to develop a personality that grew and evolved much like that of a child. So Karn in in that way is Phyrexian. He's their baby. He is their baby. He's he, yeah, and Bar- yeah, Baron and and Urza are Con- uh, parents. Aww. Interesting that the Hearthstone is like in his brain. Right. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking that too. Yeah, cuz it, it, cuz at the at the after Zancha and uh Ritepe died, Urza still had the had Zancha's Hearthstone that he had kept. Yeah. And she gave it to him when they before they left Sarah's realm. That's sweet. It's like she donated her eggs or something, you mm-hmm. know, and then they used it to make a child. But yeah, yeah, it's very, sure. uh, it's it's very very cool. <laughs> so moving on to Joyra, uh, she was a talented artificer that was brought to the academy at age eleven, and by the time of this story, she had already been studying at the academy for ten years and had become a high ranking senior student, but not yet a teacher. Jara was originally a part of the Gitu tribe, a nomadic tribe of people that traveled across the continent of Shiv on Dominaria. And we'll be going to Shiv later on in the story, so we'll explain more about it then. We're not going to get bogged down just yet. We're not going to get bogged down at all, unless we start doing Mike Myers references. Who's this guy? That's, that's <laughs> Teferi. This is everybody's favorite pioneer, historic, and modern legal planeswalker. In this photo you have here, it looks like he's about to cause some mischief. He's he like, is. oh, shit. That's totally <laughs> what he's saying. Yeah. And when we first meet Teferi in the story, he's just uh, 14 years old. He had been attending the academy for several years by the time this story takes place. And in that time, he developed a reputation for being kind of a pain in the ass. Mm. He played pranks on ah. teachers and students alike. And Urza and Baron gave him a pass on 
his behavior because he was incredibly talented when it came to magic. I think the prophecy was probably more likely uh, for Teferi as opposed to Baron. Not that Baron isn't a powerful wizard in his own right. I also like that he was a pain in the ass at school and then just like playing magic, he's also a pain in the ass. It's very flavorful. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. So now that we know a bit about... Talaria and the characters that we'll be talking about over the next few episodes, we can get to the events that took place during this time period. We're going to start with Ainsley reading a part of one of Baron's many monologues from the novel. So the following is essentially how Baron views Urza at the beginning of this story. Urza is incapable of regret and gratitude, of having dear friends. Not that there haven't been folk like Zancha, Retepe, Sarah and I, who genuinely love the man and would give our lives for him, but he seems incapable of returning our affection. That's not enough to declare him insane, of course. As I said, measures of sanity among planeswalkers are hard to come by, but there is something mad about Urza's blithe belief that Zancha and Retepe sacrificed themselves, that Sarah's realm and Argoth sacrificed themselves, that Mishra sacrificed himself. It seems everyone and everything Urza claims to care about gets destroyed. And what does that mean for me, his newest dear friend? Yeah, so a big part of this story is Urza's redemption and Urza taking accountability for his past actions. And we start to see that at the end of Planeswalker, but this is the story where he really... um, you know, sort of becomes a human being for the first time, you know, somebody who possesses compassion. And Karn is a big part of that. Redeeming a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to be that guy for a minute here. And just disclaimer, grammar disclaimer, guys. Mm. So I know that it's sort of like been drilled into us that whenever you're listing people, including yourself, you're supposed to end it with and I. But there are some instances, like in the instance of this passage... Folk like Zancha, Retepe, Sarah, and I, it should be me. Because if the other list wasn't there, it would say, Urza's incapable of having dear friends like me. So you wouldn't say like I. So, you know, okay. just just some food for thought. That's our disclaimer for this episode. Throwing that yeah. out into the ether. <laughs> it's not a, it's, yeah, gram, grammatically, it's not super well written, but uh, it's, you know, that's team It's interesting, though. It is interesting. Yeah, and it's also hard not to say Retepe with a little bit of a, a f- exotic flavorful accent. Flair. Yeah. <laughs> I think like Baron's passage here, it makes it sound like he's thinking that, you know, Urza is someone who thinks that he has to go on and do all these things and everyone is a sacrifice. Like they have sacrificed to help Urza go on and, you know, save the realms or whatever we're going to call it, the plains, I should say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, for sure. I think it could be interpreted that way. I kind of thought it to mean like he's suggesting that instead of Urza kind of taking accountability for some of these people who've died around him, he says that they sacrifice themselves. Yeah, it, I think for Urza, a lot of this has been the ends justifies the means. Like if I can, if I can save Dominaria from Phyrexia, it doesn't matter what's left in my wake. Mm. Yeah. Um, and anyways, the students and tutors at the academy don't know Urza's real name or identity, but for the sake of brevity, we're going to be referring to Urza as Urza for this series. Just know that no one other than Baron knows who Urza really is, at least the beginning of the story. But 
when Urza starts to use his powers, it becomes clear what he really is and, and the characters do find out. So uh, we're probably not going to point that out, but it, uh, it'll, be, it'll be apparent when it, they do. It's not a huge like watershed moment mm. for these characters. It's kind of like how in the last novel... You know, we refer to Rat as Rat, but Urza was referring to him as Mishra throughout the whole mm-hmm. novel. Yeah. Yeah, they, yeah, they, right. pulled a, they pulled a fast one on him. They sure did. They done tricked him. <laughs> so our story begins on the island of Talaria, of course, but instead of finding our newly introduced characters somewhere in the academy, we find Jorah in the cave hideout that she had built for herself during her time at the academy. Her hideout was located near the coast of the island, and on that particular day, she was spending her time looking out at the ocean. She couldn't see very far, as the island was surrounded by an almost constant mist of thick fog, like we mentioned earlier. She was thinking about her former home in Shiv, as well as her soulmate, a soulmate that she hadn't met yet. Jorah explained that she knew her soulmate would have to be mysterious. She could not be in love with a man unless, at the core of his being... There was mystery. I feel you, girl. No, that's a red flag. (laughs) That's a red flag. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) You can't go into the garage, honey. It's like it's like women who who think that they can like fix. You know, it's like oh, you know, I they like to be with like someone who's damaged because they want to fix them. Yeah. No, you can't fix them. People don't change. People don't change. Anyways, um, it was during this ocean viewing that Joyra. Oh, it's a bit of a, a bit of a consonant jumble there. It was during this ocean viewing that Joyra noticed a piece of white fabric flapping in the wind near the craggy cliffs to the east coast of the island. Joyra thought it might have been another student that had gotten too close to the cliff edge and fallen. As Joyra made her way down the cliff's edge, she noticed the fabric was tied to something rigid, a sail. Joyra found a small ship that had crashed into something before it crashed again into this side of the island. The boat was in a precarious situation. It had a large hole in the front of its hull, and with each wave, the hole was made bigger against the shore's rocks. Joyra approached the ship cautiously. She knew how few ships approached Talaria. The island was far too remote and distant from normal trade routes to attract other ships. Joyra thought it might be abandoned, but either way, she made her way onto the deck before searching the various cabins below deck. In one cabin, Joyra came across a man she thought was dead, he wasn't, and Jorah took him back to her cave hideout and nursed him back to health. Nice. Yeah. And he was mysterious. Ooh. Might be her soulmate. The man's name was Carrick, and Jorah thought he was beautiful. <laughs> he was He was big, he was strong, and he had blonde locks flowing down to his shoulders. Like Fabio. <laughs> we have a Fabio His, in magic. I, I, yeah, I forgot to put curly, so not quite like Fabio, okay. but close. Well... Okay. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. Could this be Joyra's Man of Mystery? No. I'm okay. Put your votes in. What do you think, Eric? Is this her Man of Mystery? No. No, <laughs> I, I don't think so. I think I think it's probably going to be someone she doesn't expect. Yeah, because a Man of Mystery is a red flag. So it's probably bad. Oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, students of the Academy were ordered to report any such castaways, but Joyra was worried about what would happen to Carrick if she reported his arrival. So she didn't secrets oh while Joyra was hiding Carrick Urza and Baron were waking up Karn for the first time they didn't call him Karn at first like we mentioned earlier they only referred to him as the probe 
They had built him for the purpose of time travel. Urza had already built a functioning time machine, but anything made of flesh couldn't survive the stresses of temporal displacement. Uh, sort of like the opposite of the Terminator time machines where only organic material could go through the time machine. So that's why they had to c- cover the Terminators in... Um, flesh. Flesh, exactly. Or in the first one where right. they send Kyle Reese and he's just a man. He's uh, a man, baby. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Anyway, instead of sending any old artifact creature traveling through time, Urza and Baron had decided that it would be best to send something that could fully understand their mission. That mission being to travel back in time to before Yogmoth started down his path towards becoming the architect of Phyrexia. Although Urza didn't know the extent of Yogmoth's humble beginnings, I bet people did call him Yog. You know, for short, it's like, hey, Yog. Yog. This is my buddy Yog. Nice, you know, check, like, Yo, check him Yog. out. Yeah. He's going to be a doctor someday. He's really into medicine. Good. <laughs> <laughs> so um, he knew that some members of the Thran became the first Phyrexians, of course. And uh, we actually covered Yogmoth in greater detail at the top of our series covering the novel Planeswalker. So if you want to know more, you can listen to that episode. Um and there's also a uh, unofficial audiobook on Spotify for the novel The Thran. If you want to check that out, just go on Spotify and search The Thran, and uh, I'm sure you'll find it. Uh, Baron wasn't totally on board for the whole time traveling thing. He pointed out that by going back in time a few thousand years could stop the Thran from becoming Phyrexia, but it would also be tantamount to erasing everyone that had existed on Dominaria since that time. And. Per the um, excerpt we had Ainsley read, Urza would rather wipe the proverbial slate clean than deal with the part he's played in letting the Phyrexians back into Dominaria. Because, of course, Urza is still kind of a piece of shit at the beginning of the story. (laughs) Yeah, it's just like, you know, we we want to get rid of this evil and if some people die for it or don't exist, well, there's no more Phyrexia, so. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, the ends justify the means. The greater good. But I guess Urza wouldn't also exist. And that also presupposes that in this, you know, I hate to get into a conversation about time travel, but it presupposes uh-huh. that Urza thinks that um, that it's not a, like that time is not predetermined. So if he goes back in time, he can alter his present. Uh, it's sort of like the movie Frequency, that's how time travel worked in that movie. So like, you know, like Jim Caviezel's character shot off or no, Dennis Quaid's character shot off the serial killer's hand. And then in Jim Caviezel's time, like 30 years later, when he was fighting that same serial killer, that serial killer's hand dematerialized. That's the kind of time travel that Urza is talking about as opposed to like Dragon Ball Z time travel, where it's more like traveling to a different dimension. So like Trunks travels back in time to give Goku the, uh, the, the heart disease vaccine, but it doesn't affect Trunks's timeline. So, you know, we don't really know what kind of time travel we're dealing with here. Mm, it's also back to the future timeline, which would exactly be where it like fades. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it's not <laughs> it's as, fade. it's not as immediate as frequency. So yeah. there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of ins and outs here mm-hmm. that I don't think there's Urza has really adjusted for loopers. Another one. <laughs> yeah. Looper's more like frailty yes. or uh, frequency. Yeah. Frailty. Also a good movie. Yeah, well, I was going to say with Looper, like, the guy, there were many moments where they showed where a guy, like, something happened to him in the past, and he, like, loses his hand or whatever there in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, poof. Yeah. Poof. 
Or you carve something into your skin in the past and you still have the scar in the future. It just like magically yeah. appears, the scar. Scars or, magically appears. <laughs> or there's the or there's the type of, of time stream where everything is predetermined. So you are always predetermined to, to travel through time. So you can't really change anything. Mm-hmm. So there's yes. that one too. But um, getting back to Karn or the probe as, as Urza and Baron called him. Karn was intelligent and was fully capable of moving his body, but he would need to learn social integration as well as how to interpret his emotions. On Karn's first day of life, Urza ordered that Karn be sent out to interact with the students and teachers of the academy in order to develop his personality. One of the first people Karn met was the young mage Teferi. Teferi already had a reputation at the school for being a handful, and he behaved no differently with Karn. Teferi started by shaking Karn's hand with a shocking spell that had little effect on the Silver Man. Teferi then moved on to questioning what kind of name the probe was and started spitballing more appropriate names for the Silver Man. Teferi finally landed on the name Artie Shovelhead. <laughs> Shortly after that, Teferi gave Karn a tour of the Academy and they finished the tour at the Great Furnace, a large room filled with dissected artifact creatures, dismantled machines, and piles of rusted scrap metal. Teferi explained to Karn that this was where all of Urza's machines ended up when they no longer served a purpose. They would be melted down and reformed into new machines, and this explanation sent a shiver of dread through Karn. He thought that he might one day end up here, especially since Teferi said as much. But... You know, anyone who's uh, up to speed on, on magic knows better. And this is another yep. ongoing theme in this story, the, the parent-child relationship between Urza and Karn. Urza has to learn that Karn is his child, essentially, and more importantly, has to uh, has the mind of a child. While Karn learns he's not just a machine, I think this next excerpt from the novel illustrates this, and again, it's from Baron. What we've got here is no longer just a machine. You know it, and I know it. So does the probe. You gave him emotions. You need to acknowledge those emotions. You need to respect those emotions. Don't you see? This is not just a probe anymore. He is a man. No, more than that. He is a child. He'll need to be guided like one. <laughs> That's a man, baby. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Come on, Urza. You got to acknowledge and validate his feelings. Mm-hmm. Urza's never been good at that, though. No, God, no. Remember that wife of his? Ugh. <laughs> and he's, he makes a bunch of machines, too, so he's like, oh, it's just like the others. Poor Karn. He's like, I'm going to end up in the trash. Poor guy. Oh, yeah, really, for sure. <laughs> it's like Teferi's mean older brothers that tell him he's not good. Yeah. Yeah. So now that Karn had started to learn and explore, it was time to throw him into the time machine and see how far back they could send him. If you'd like to get an idea of what their time machine looked like, you can see it partially depicted on the card, te on the card Temporal Aperture. And I definitely don't think this image inspires a ton of confidence, but that's Urza there doing his magics. Good for him. Good for him. Got a nice beard happening. <laughs> yeah, he does have a great beard. Nice beard. I, I wonder how long it was that he um, was like exploring the school and stuff before they just decided to send him back. Because it doesn't really say. No, it was like the <laughs> same. It was like the same day. Yeah. Oh. It was like okay. his first his first day. Like get him in there. He's he's operational. Get him in there. We don't have time for this. Yeah, we don't have time for this. Go for it. 
Yeah, the book's only two hundred and like eighty pages, so they gotta gotta, gotta wrap get it up. To it. Come on, yeah. hop to it. <laughs> Uh, before Urza and Baron sent Karn on his first trip uh, with the machine, they explained to him that in addition to being able to send him to different times, the machine could also send him to different locations. But because there would be no time machine located wherever and whenever they sent Karn, they designed their machine to work like a boomerang, meaning that each trip Karn was sent on would have a time limit. So let's say Karn was sent back in time 12 hours. He could only be able to stay in that time and place for a limited period of time before being pulled back to his present standing under the time machine. So that I think, makes sense. I think that's a good way of doing it. Yeah, and that's sort of how um, in the... I don't know how it worked in the novel timeline, but in the movie they had these little like necklaces that they could use to get back, but they had to do it at a specific time because that's when they would activate the machine. Mm. Um, I just feel like relying on an object to get back would be so anxiety-inducing. Like, Well, that's why, like, H.G. Wells hit the nail on the head because you just get in the time machine and then you travel back in time, but you stay in the same place and you're, like, piloting the machine. Mm. That's how I would want to do it. I'd want to have full control yeah. over the machine. But Karn's just like, all right, I guess I'll do it. I'm a kid. He doesn't know. No, he doesn't know. These this poor he guy. He doesn't know about consent. No, he doesn't. An artifact creature can't give consent. What? Well, Karn can because he sent you. There was a um, a movie that actually kind of does this. I don't remember what it's called, but there's like a guys that are really interested in medieval times, and then they're trying to make like a a machine that can transport a package from one area to another, but they accidentally like make a time machine. No, that's time. That's, ti- that's timeline. It's based on a, on a, uh, Michael Crichton novel with this. Of the oh, same that title. is that. Yeah. It's timeline. Oh, yeah, okay. With, with Billy Connolly <laughs> and, uh, um, Oh, what's that guy from fast and the furious that died? Oh, Paul Walker. Yeah. RIP. Oh, yeah. Not hot tub time machine. <laughs> no, that's a good one too. Though. <laughs> that's um, so the first trip that they sent Karn on was only a few hours backward earlier that same morning. The trip was successful and Urza and Baron got Karn to make a report on what he saw. And Karn saw his past self dismantled and that kind of bummed him out. But the time machine worked and they could start sending Karn further and further back until he reached the time of the throne. This next bit is from Baron. The first day of life is always the hardest to be dragged from whatever warm, safe womb in which one is conceived, and then thrust into the cold glare of the world. There is much to adjust to, breathing air instead of liquid for one, being naked and prodded and scrubbed for another. Worst of all, there is that moment when the cord is cut and what is suddenly and irrevocably alone. It is in recognition of such traumas that mother's arms are made. You have no mother, you have no father either, You have a pair of creators, but that is not the same. Neither of us knows how to comfort and protect you. If you need too much nurturing, we may even consider you defective. Perhaps it is because you were designed to be a tool, a weapon, not a person. Perhaps it is because we have not expected to have to save you. We were hoping you would save us. Yep. Interesting. So several weeks later, Joyra and Karn met for the first time. Joyra already knew of Karn, of course, as a senior artificer at the Academy. She was present when Urza and Baron had showcased their silver man on several occasions during his construction, but she hadn't seen him since he had been fully completed. One of Joyra's tasks as a senior artificer was to interview Karn. 
Urza and Baron wanted Joira to write a treatise on Karn, specifically explaining how an automaton becomes a thinking, feeling creature with nothing more than the addition of a crystal, which is what the Hearthstone looks like. I don't think Urza told anybody what it actually was. Mm. We know that the crystal she is referring to is, of course, Zancha's Hearthstone, and, uh, you know, it just works. The, in, the interview was quite fortuitous because it was how Karn got his name. Uh, up until this point, he was still being referred to as the Probe. While Joyra was asking Karn questions about his experience of being the first living artifact, she showed him drafting sketches that she had made of him throughout his construction. On one of those drafting sketches was the word Karn next to a bracket that traced the golem's frame. Karn asked Joyra what the word meant. She told Karn that the word was... Thran, the word meant mighty, and so that's how Karn got his name. Like Jorio just said, oh, you know, uh, uh, well, Karn said, I like that, and Jorio was like, boom, that's your name, buddy. And now they were best friends. So Urza has a best friend, and Karn has a best friend. It's fun. Yeah. Yay, friends. Yeah. Uh, Jorio continued to ask Karn about the dead looking power stone that was housed in his head. Karn pointed out the possibility that it might not be a power stone. He also explained that through time travel, he had seen himself without the stone in his head, and without it, he was just another automaton. Karn had let slip his secret time-traveling project with Urza and Baron, but now that Joyra and Karn were best friends, it didn't matter because she wasn't going to tell anybody. Good. Yeah. Because she doesn't want to get in trouble either. No. Yeah. Just as Joyra began to ask more questions, Baron arrived to request Karn's presence for another experiment. Things went on like that for another couple of months, Karn being sent further and further back in time, Joyra and Karn getting to know each other better, and Joyra keeping Carrick a secret. Don't forget about Carrick. He's going to come back. Mm. Oh, yeah, Carrick. Carrick and his luscious, <laughs> which, luscious locks. He's beautiful. He's beautiful. Which, <laughs> which is like, it's like Crick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So it was it was on one of these time travel experiments that Karn discovered Carrick living in Jorah's cave. She's living, <laughs> living in a cave. <laughs> he had been sent 18 hours back and five miles away from where the time machine stood. And that five miles took Karn beyond the island and into the surrounding waters. While he was looking back at the island, he saw a small light coming from the cave. He moved closer to the cave, and when Carrick saw that the golem was moving closer, he let several arrows fly at the golem. But that didn't really matter as um, arrows just bounce right off of Karn because he's a silver man. Realizing that this was an act of aggression and knowing the rules about people living outside of the academy grounds, Karn started back toward the island to capture the man. When Karn made his way back to the coast, he and Carrick began to tussle. Their fight woke up Jorah, who was sleeping in the cave at the time. Surprised by her presence, Karn stopped trying to capture Carrick. She then explained the situation to Karn and asked him to keep her secret. And, you know, since Joy was already keeping a secret for Karn. And they're BFFs, and they pinky swore. That's right. You don't tell. Um, So Karn Karn kept the secret, but it was was a bad secret to to keep. And uh, shortly after his exchange with Joy, Karn was pulled back to the present under the time machine. Anyway, in a few more months, the time machine had been even, uh, had been perfected even more. And they were now able to send Karn thousands of miles away, as well as sending him an entire day into the past. As a result of the continued experiments with time travel, the present time was starting to be affected by anomalies. 
At first, the anomalies were subtle and far between, slight time lags passing through the air like mild tremors. The frequency of these anomalies gradually grew worse as they pushed the limits of time travel further. The slight time lags began occurring one week from one day. All kinds of things began to happen, but it was mostly mundane things like filling a glass too full with liquid or a steak being burned to a crisp while steaks near it were barely cooked. In more severe cases of these temporal distortion tremors, students and tutors suffered from hearts skipping beats or stopping altogether while inside them. When caught in some of these tremors, students and tutors were also unable to breathe. This resulted in the academy infirmary filling up with the very old and the very young. So they're sort of like tremors (laughs) floating through the air and you can kind of just get caught in them. Hmm. And then, you know, like you're, let's say you're in a slow time stream and your heart stops or you're in a fast time stream and, um, you're having heart palpitations. Yeah. Or your steak gets cooked too fast and you're like, well, there goes my steak. There goes my steak. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, but the experiments continued because of course the ends justify the means Yep. Uh, which isn't the opinion of this podcast, but it's it's Urza's opinion. Much to Karn's objections, Karn didn't like that the experiments uh, he'd been created to undertake were causing so much pain and trouble. So he conveyed how he felt about it to Urza and Baron, to which Urza replied with the same old, our mission is more important than a few Academy members winding up in the infirmary. Baron was a bit more sympathetic to Karn's feelings, but he overall agreed with Urza and their mission. Like we said at the beginning of this series, Baron knows who Urza really is, and that knowledge is expressed in this next excerpt. Sometimes I forget all Urza has seen, all he has done. He is not mad, not holy. He is ancient and inhuman, transformed by the millennia, but he is not wholly mad. Yeah, so, you know, Baron's... uh, sympathetic to uh everyone involved Baron seems, seems like a nice yeah. guy i was just gonna say that yeah, yeah. so what let's nice get guy. back to joyra and carrick he's beautiful by the way if, oh, if we Lord. haven't already expressed that um after a couple locks. more months they were still um uh, actually no that's uh i gotta move that they actually never um had sex they, they never they never sealed the deal but they did a lot of um you know, snuggling and probably dry humping and yeah, hand stuff. <laughs> yeah, probably hand stuff, but never, no full penetration. And uh, on the on that particular night, Joyra was being followed to her cave by Teferi. Oh, because he wants to know oh. what she's up to. She's sneaking out of the academy. She's not supposed to be out there. So now Teferi knew Joyra's secret as well. And even though Joyra already didn't like Teferi, I don't think we mentioned that, but she didn't doesn't like him. Uh, Teferi decided he didn't want to make the situation between the two of them worse by telling anyone about this stranger that Jorah was sneaking away to see most nights. And on his way back to the academy, Teferi was caught by a couple of guards that brought him back to the academy to be interrogated, which they did for hours without getting any information out of him about why he was outside the academy grounds. The interrogation took most of the night, without getting any information out of Teferi, and by morning, the guards had decided to turn him over to Urza for further questioning. Urza could just, like, read his mind. But as we know from Planeswalker, sometimes when Urza tries to read your mind, he might kill you. Yep. This was information that Karn knew, because I guess he was connected to the goings-on of the security force of the Academy 
but I really don't know. He just, once Karn put two and two together regarding what Teferi was doing in the woods, he went to Jorah to tell her that her secret might soon be known by the Academy's headmaster, which was Urza. Karn was confident that if the guards didn't get any information out of Teferi, then it was unlikely that he would give any to Urza. But, of course, these characters don't know uh, the extent of Urza's power at this point. Still, yeah. Jorah had a less favorable opinion of the situation as well as um, Teferi. She thought that he was probably holding out for the right price, maybe one that involved Jorah being expelled from the academy. Either way, Jorah decided to go directly to Urza and confess before Teferi could tell him, so the two of them went back to the academy to find Urza. When the two arrived at at Urza's office, he was interrogating Teferi, who was still not telling Urza the real reason he was outside the academy grounds. Baron was also present, and he let Karn and Jorah into the room. When Jorah went to confess that she was the reason that Teferi was outside the academy grounds, Teferi interrupted her to tell everyone that he was outside the night that night before because Jorah had dared him to do it, just to see if he could bypass the academy guards. That's, uh... oh, so he's still trying to make it seem like he wasn't following. Like he doesn't want to tell. No, because uh, yeah, he yeah. Uh, he likes her. Yeah. Aww. Yeah. Is he the mystery man? Maybe. There's no mystery to Teferi. He's all he's all surface. Oh, okay. Yeah. He's just a pain in the ass. Well, maybe he's her soulmate. <laughs> he might be. Because a man of mystery or a woman of mystery or a whatever mystery. Or an mystery, international man of mystery. Well, that's, yeah, a, that's an exception. That's an exception. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying otherwise, to see how many Austin Powers references I can get into this episode. Otherwise, it's a red flag. But anyways, I guess somebody is going to have to be a nicer to Teferi from now on because he just threw himself under the bus for you, Jara. Uh, anyways, Urza and Baron didn't believe the young man, even if they told the two students and Karn that they did. The three of them left, uh, while Urza and Baron discussed what really might be happening outside the academy grounds. Urza told Baron that he thought there was a Phyrexian somewhere in the academy. He claimed he could smell it. Glistening oil, anyone? So, Probably. Yeah, it's gotta be Carrick. Yeah, well, you guys, yeah. <laughs> it's that beautiful boy. Well, it's his blonde Rick. locks. Yeah. <laughs> Kirk. <laughs> and on Karn's next trip through time, he discovered who the Phyrexian was. On this trip, Karn was sent back 46 hours, so just shy of two days. And that was the furthest he'd been sent back yet. Now is a good time to explain Karn's perspective of the time jump. So um, during the time jump process, while Karn was still under the time machine and at the 22-hour backward mark, so Karn can... Karn gets under the time machine and it starts working and it's like wah 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 He's wah, like, wah, it's wah, working. Wah, wah, wah. That's, it's just like <laughs> oh, Jake boy. Lloyd from episode one. Exactly. <laughs> and... So things start to go in reverse. So Urza and Baron are working the controls of the machine. And as the machine starts working, they start working the controls backward. And then they eventually walk backward out of the room. So Karn can stand there and see everything happening in reverse. Hmm. So he's not just like instantly transported. Cool. Yeah. During this trip at the 22 hour backward mark, he saw someone enter Urza's lab and search it. And at that point in time, it was it was dark, and Karn was unable to see who the person was, but it was clear that whatever was going on, it was nefarious. 
At least it's clear to us. I'm, you know, just... Well, yeah, if someone's lurking around in the dark. If you're lurking, it's it's nefarious. <laughs> if Teferi was ever to become like a hip-hop star, uh, he should be Teferius. That's good. Right? Yeah, that, hey, might be the next, good. that might be the next secret layer. We get like a Post Malone secret layer. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> well, any, anything goes now. You know it, Eric. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is a perfect representation of how the magic community feels right now. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> there you go. Just collectively <laughs> gripping their forehead. Yeah. yeah. So um, now, Karn, 46 hours in the past, by this time, by that time, whoever had broken into the lab that the night before had returned and at least was beginning to open the door to enter. Karn hadn't been uh, sent anywhere geographically on this trip. So when he arrived in the past, he was still in Urza's lab, ready to find out who the person was. Whoever was opening the door to the lab must have heard Karn inside, because when Karn moved toward the door, it closed quickly, but gently. So Karn gave chase. Stopping at the door, he opened it slightly to look down the hall and saw Carrick disappear around the corner. You guys are right. He's bad. Mm. Jor- oh, look at that. <laughs> Jor- it's not like told- you built that up or anything. It's not even a good <laughs> fake name. It's not even a good fake name. Go with like Phil or something. It's way too close to yeah. Crick. Jorah <laughs> had told Carrick how she uh, got in and out of the academy on a daily basis, and that's how he was able to infiltrate the school. Anyway, Karn kept right on after Carrick because he really didn't trust this guy, and why would anybody? Karn didn't trust him from the get-go, everybody. I mean, no. she's shooting arrows at him. Yeah. You're not going to trust that guy. No. It must be really hard for Karn to, uh, like, catch somebody in in a way, because it's like, you kind of always know where he is. He's a big metal golem. He's got to walk or run pretty loud. Yeah, and, and multiple times throughout this novel and the next novel, Karn will say, you know, people will be like, Karn, come on, go faster. And he's like, hey, guy, I wasn't built for speed, all right? Yeah. He's like... <laughs> Sad. <laughs> I'm a big hulking golem. I'm, I'm huge. Yes. Give me a break. Like what? <laughs> so Karn's pursuit led him outside the academy walls and into the woods. When he finally caught up to Carrick, Karn saw that he was talking to two strangers. Karn w- remained hidden and heard Carrick say, The passage is here. Bring the full company of negators. I will be sure the way is open. I will be sure the guards on the wall are dead. So in case you hadn't figured it out, everybody, Carrick's a bad guy. What? (laughs) (laughs) And the passage she's referring to is the one that Jorah showed him, the one that she used to get in and out of the school undetected. Of course, she didn't know he was a bad guy while she was snuggling with him. But the bad ones are fun to snuggle with. Well, he's a man of mystery. Yeah, it's a red flag. Yeah. Uh, anyways, that was all Karn was able to see because at that moment he was pulled back to the present by Urza and Baron, whom he told about uh, what he had just seen. Karn didn't feel good about betraying Jorah's confidence, but an invasion of the Academy was far more important. Uh, and remember, that was two days ago, so we're about to see some action. Oh, yeah. And that is where we're going to pick back up for part two of this series. Fun. Yes. Um, so... Everyone, uh, hopefully you enjoyed the first part of our Time Streams Explained series. This might be, uh, uh, I don't know how many episodes this is going to be. This might take us right into Commander Legends, but we'll just have to see. It's going to be a mystery. Unless they read the book. 
but they're, they're I mean you can but like why yeah why we're just gonna do it for you yeah you can uh, of course uh, find us on all the podcast platforms including YouTube where you might be watching this uh, right now probably listening to it and uh, you can find me on Instagram at command beacon um Honey, where can uh, people find you? People can find me on the Instagram at Ainsley Amethyst, all one word. And of course, you can find Turn One Soul Ring, the podcast on Instagram as well. Absolutely. Uh, Thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week with uh, part two of our Time Streams Explained series. Also, check out the the links in the description below if you like deck techs or uh, deck lists because you can find Eric, Riley, and mine's uh, links to our deck stats decks, including the ones we've done for the show, as well as just our personal decks. Hmm. Personal fun stuff. That's right. Um, All right, everybody. Well, we will talk to you soon and have a nice, have a nice time until then. Yeah, baby. Creek. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. It's going to be hard not to do the creak every time we talk about him because it's just going to be that that becomes his name. Spoiler alert. That's (laughs) outstanding. All right, everybody. Have a good one. Bye bye. Bye. Turn one soul ring.